Donuts and the Society of Survivors podcast. I am Grace Baudino, and this is episode four. I'm doing this for a whole month now. Um, today's episode is actually part one of a two-parter because my guest has a pretty significant and involved story to tell. And uh, to try and do it all in one episode just wouldn't do it justice. So, two-parter. So today is part one. And before I get too far into it, um, I want to, I guess, uh, say something to whoever's listening. And that is that um, Deadman's Donuts and the Society of Survivors is a... I mean, I would call it a social experiment. I don't know. It is a effort to emphasize the sameness of our experiences. Um, survival stories are very personal, but they're also very universal. And while you might not have the same life experience as the people who are talking on my little show here, I'm hoping that you can at least identify with the struggles that they've faced in an effort to overcome the things that have happened to them and the things that have been done to them. In my job, it's tempting for me to dehumanize people simply in an effort to avoid getting so much trauma on me. You know, as, as a deputy medical examiner, I am constantly in contact with people who are grieving. And it's it's hard not to put up walls because... You know, on the one hand, that saves you from being affected by their sorrow, but I feel like it also affects your capacity to connect. And so Dead Men's Donuts and the Society of Survivors is a attempt to connect. Not only for me to connect, but hopefully it's also a chance for you to connect with a story you might not have otherwise heard. And I'd just like to say that I know that these stories are not the only ones out there. Um, I'm hoping that as you listen, as you guys hear these stories, that you will be encouraged to um, pass on your own tales, that you might uh, know somebody that has a survival story that you can pass on to me. Because the thing is, I know that my, my experience is limited, and at the moment, I am doing the survival stories of people that I have immediate access to, and I'm hoping that my access to people will grow through this, and I'll be able to have more voices heard here from every demographic and every walk of life. That said, uh, today's story, my guest, Chris, is... Um, I know there's no such thing as a former Marine, but he was in the Marines, and then he was a police officer who retired. Um, he basically suffered a great deal of PTSD while he was in the Marines, and that followed him home, uh, followed him into his police career. And this story is intensely personal for me um, because... In emergency services, in the military, there is an emphasis on being tough and there is an emphasis on are you able to take it and are you, are you one of the guys and can you cut it? 
And even in, you know, my first as a paramedic, now as a deputy medical examiner, there was always kind of this attitude of, if you are hurt, it's because you're weak. If you are traumatized, it's because you're soft. And it's really amazing to me that Chris has the courage to come forward and be vulnerable, which is something that is not really encouraged. And he's able to say out loud and to me and to all of you, yes, yeah, something happened to me in the military that hurt me. Something happened to me that traumatized me. It, I carry it around and I am still learning how to deal with it. And so, first of all, you know, trigger warnings. Um, this episode involves military service. It involves hazing. It involves uh, bullying. It involves um, explosions. Uh, bazookas, uh, bombs, knives, sharp sticks. It involves somebody being abused by his peers for two whole years and feeling like he had no choice but to take it. Um, and if you take issue with uh, law enforcement or the military, you're more than welcome to just turn this podcast right the fuck off right now and come back when I have a different guest on. But... I would also challenge you to leave the podcast on and maybe, you know, stretch the expanses of your, your feelings in the matter and listen to a story that you might not otherwise have heard and maybe create a connection in your mind between your own trauma and that of another human being, regardless of what their profession is or what their life experience might be. So, without further ado, here is Chris's story. It's like <laughs> freeform comment. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's tell me your survival story, however that happens to okay. come out. My survival story. Yeah. Uh, how did I end up here? Just gotta get the get the old lady to leave me alone here. All right. So, um, <laughs> my survival story. Okay. So now I'm gonna start one spot, and we're gonna have to go back. It's kind of like a fucked up movie. Um. The first time I ever actually told my story unfiltered and free of any fear of rejection, any negative feelings, I guess you could say, just the, the like judgment? judgment, rejection, anything like that, uh, was at rehab. And um, so it was my first night at a rehab facility down in uh, Tucson, Arizona. It, I, what I found out later was in the history of this entire facility, most rehab facilities are very female centric. You know, like there's a lot of female patients there, and not you know. And for the first time at this particular center, it was all male residents, wow. which is exactly what I needed. Um, <laughs> and um, I was there with a CFO for a very major U.S. city. There was 
a VP for um, a large heavy equipment manufacturer that if you saw the name of it, everybody knows it kind of thing. Um, hey, let's not say it. <laughs> nope. I, I don't want to. I'm trying to be very careful with my words here. Uh, another guy was a. Um, he's the CEO of a uh, major medical uh, equipment sales company. So when you go into operations, you go into surgeries. There's some sales guy in there all the time. Anytime you need some new equipment, they're selling you their shit. So he's in charge of that. And um, there was a very high dollar attorney there, and. Um, this 18 year old gangbanger from San Diego. So, and then, and, <laughs> and, and then you, and a retired cop, you know, turned gym owner. And, um, okay. So I'm yeah. going to stop you here. Yeah. <laughs> you are a retired cop. Yes. I was a uh, police officer from 2002, essentially to 2015, okay. uh, between the military and civilian, uh, time. I was a canine handler. Um, during my time in the military, <clears throat> I was uh, both a police officer and a canine handler. And uh, as a canine handler for the military, my dog was dual purpose. So I could both do the, the regular stuff that you see police dogs do now, but I also did explosive detection. So my dog could find bombs. Okay. And so I deployed to uh, Ramadi, Iraq, 2004 to 2005 during that time. And um, yeah, I deployed and I did bomb, bomb detection for a bunch of different units over there uh, okay. during that time. Yeah. And uh, that was probably best eight months of my life. Uh, I got out of the military. I got uh, hired on with a local agency up here in Oregon and uh, finished off my career up here. Um, also worked canine, was a uh, training officer, You know, worked up in the uh, survival skills and defensive tactics uh, stuff. But towards the end of my career, anxiety, depression ended up forcing my retirement. And um, then I started the gym. And well, when I... Well, well. We'll get, yeah, we, well, yeah, trust me, we'll get, we'll get there. I, I've, I've gone over this story a few You're times. Sorry, sorry. Um, You're doing the, uh, yeah. Give me the Reader's Digest version. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah. we're hitting Cliff's Notes first. So, <laughs> anyway, so I'm at this, at this rehab facility last year, uh, 2018, and it was my first night. And I had dinner with the group, and then we move into our evening group, and, uh, I'm sitting there, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? And, um, you know, cops are very critical of people who have to go to rehab. Like, we're some of the most judgmental motherfuckers on the face of the planet. Yeah. So I'm thinking, how far have I fallen from grace that now I end up in a rehab facility with these fucking degenerates? Um, and obviously, I don't know their stories yet, So, but I'm just – I'm at rehab. So that's that's the, all, that's the only thing I needed <laughs> at that point to just be fucking mad. So then we, had, we have this thing at the end of the day where I say, hey, my name is – and my intention for the day was to do X, Y, Z. And um, you know, whether you got that done or not, what you learned from that. And then um, and I ch I'm choosing to send love to and then list out whoever it is you, you want to send out love to. Anyways, I got to that point and it was right there that I finally realized how bad I had fucked up my life. And how bad I had hurt so many fucking people that were important to me. And that was the first time I've cried in a long, long time. So I'm trying to hold it in. And one of the guys, we'll call him Brian, he walks over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he's he's become very much like a father figure, father figure to me. And uh, he just goes, it's okay, son. And I lost it. And that was the end of it. So that was the start of recovery. The next morning, 
we're sitting sitting around and now because I'm the new guy at the at the facility what are you in for well <laughs> <laughs> so we had this whole series of projects where we we end up telling our whole story but in at one point we tell our whole trauma timeline and the trauma timeline is everything that fits the definition of trauma according to the DSM you <laughs> tell me about it they're like here and, and, it's like David Copperfield yeah I'm born I grow up where do you... right so I'm like where well shit you know so, well and I was like well as a cop you know for what I've done in my life my definition of trauma is what you what how you end up in a manual hospital yeah. or OHSU or some major trauma facility that's trauma to me yeah you know some of the things that they yeah. that they said goes on that list i was like that's not trauma yeah it's a, it's like a bullet to the shoulder i get hit by a car yeah <laughs> i'm you know, fine <laughs> i'm good I'm threw some dirt on it we're good you know <laughs> but um but it was there that i had i during that project that i i really had to take a step back and go oh all of these things have contributed to where i'm at now and now how to be mindful of that so we will go to that uh grew up in the uh portland metro area um what looked like a very you know stable nuclear family you know grew up in a in a very religious household so. yeah so third grade my parents uh finally got a divorce they had been fighting for a while but they they did a pretty good job of not doing a lot of it in front of my parent or in front of my brother and i and they weren't violent physically violent but they we could definitely hear it yeah. and when they got the divorce, there was, it, it, it was a it was a fairly ugly divorce. Um, there was a lot of shit talking. There was a lot of you know, pitting my brother and I against the other parent. And I don't I don't believe that that was their intent. I think that was just a very natural thing for people to do is they want people on their side, mm -hmm. um, especially since the church that we had grown up in had now completely turned their back on my mom. And we're now accusing her of having an affair and all these other horrible things that she's going to hell. And they're they're filling my brother's head and my and I filled with all this very, you know, off scripture shit. And um, so we're traveling between essentially Beaverton and Vancouver all the time. So we lived on I five. Folks were married to some great people. I got two stepsisters out of it, and. For the most part, it wasn't that bad, but I didn't realize that all the arguing and the shit talking and all that other stuff had, had started developing, you know, certain behaviors with me that were going to ultimately affect my marriage now. I was a kind of a loner kid. I wasn't, I wasn't much of a, I wasn't a natural athlete by any means. Um, I didn't pick that up until my mid twenties when I started fighting. Um, so I struggled a lot with that. I was I was the band geek that was never in the band. I hung out with all the band geeks, but I never never was in the damn thing. <laughs> I did not come across anything naturally. I let my grades just go. I graduated high school with a one point nine GPA. One point nine. Yeah, one point nine. You know, and so I would show. It's the thing. The thing about it is, is, and I've had to accept this about myself now. I am really fucking smart. I just don't want to do the fucking work to get to the point where I get the, the, the degree or the paper. So what I'll do is I'll show up and I'll do the bare minimum to show you that I understand the concept. I understand what the fuck it is you're saying. All the busy work before that, I'm not going to give a fuck. And um, so I just never did any of the assignments. I would show up for finals and midterms. I'd ace the crap out of those. <laughs> and then, you know, it would still fuck, fuck me over in the, in the long run. 9-11 happened my senior year. And I remember I had zero period, which was the class before all this, the rest of the school opened. And, um, of course, being, you know, who I was, I was in weightlifting. And uh, when, the, when the news broke about 9-11. And um, that in itself 
um, <clears throat> wasn't traumatic, I would say. However, listening to the stories of my grandfathers, my stepdad's father and my, my dad's father, you know, a World War II veteran and a Korean War veteran and a Purple Heart recipient, I knew that that's the route I was supposed to go. And listening to both my dads, you know, they both said they had never joined the military, but they wished they had. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, I also didn't think that I was smart enough to get into any college anyway. So I was like, well, community college won't even take my dumb ass, so might as well do the military. And so two weeks later, I'm in the Marine Corps, or I was in the Army recruiter office, you know, wheeling and dealing, trying to, you know, broker my, my contract. They tried to give me something I didn't want, and so I made the stupid move of threatening, well, if you don't give me this particular job, I'm going over to the Marine Corps. And he goes, no, you won't. I was like, you want to bet? And he goes, go for it. You won't make it anyway. So I grabbed my packet off his desk, which apparently you're not supposed to do, and I literally walked next door to the next office, and I met Gunny Getchell. And I walked into her office. I said, this is the contract I want, and this is what I want to do. She goes, okay, here you go, and had me a contract within about 20 minutes. So... I joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> um, my uncle was a Marine Corps officer, and I just remember how fucking nerdy he was. So, you know, and how how much my parents would kind of poke fun at him for it. So I was like, I was a little conflicted about joining a band of nerds. So I didn't know anything about the military, and at that time we didn't really have anything other than say like movies like Hamburger Hill or Black Hawk Down and shit like that. So we we didn't have any real reference to it or what we were going to get into. So August 2002 shows up, and I leave the rose-colored glasses, uh, safety of a sheltered upbringing, and I find myself at MCRD San Diego, where I have got the biggest culture shock of my life. So we get to the depot, and I'm on the yellow footprints, and... Um, you know, what, what, what are the yellow footprints? So when you get to the Marine Corps Recruit Depot, the bus shows up late at night, and then everybody gets onto what's called uh, the yellow footprints. And only the Marine Corps has them. The yellow footprints, two outlines of two feet. Oh, look at that. Okay. Yep. They naturally put the heels together, feet out at a 45 degree angle from the heels, and the body will naturally fall to the position of attention you know, when you stand on those yellow footprints. And then they're also put in columns and in lines, so that way everybody is put into the correct position for a platoon formation. The only two places that you're going to see those yellow footprints is MCRD San Diego and MCRD Paris Island. So we're on the yellow footprints, and the guy, the drill, the receiving drill instructor is reading off the, the 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 new laws that we have to follow that we belong to the government essentially. And I made a decision at that moment. I said, "Well, I don't like the kid that I was leading up to this point. I didn't like." you know, a lot of aspects of myself. You know, I had zero self-esteem, zero self-worth, anything like that. And... Why is that? Um, you know, I nobody really ever stuck up for me or, you know, validated me in a way where I actually felt that their words were meaningful and truthful. So my mom or my dad would say, oh, yeah, I love you. You're important, shit like that. But then in the back of your mind, you're going, well, you're a fucking parent. That's what you're supposed to say. (laughs) Duh, right? Um, But because I was a loner, because I was kind of the loser kid, because I was physically weak and and, and much smaller than I am now, and I had no tactical knowledge or ability to defend myself or anybody else for that matter, 
you know, I just stayed way under the radar. And because, you know, I didn't do well in school, the teachers like to tell me how fucking dumb I was. Getting a, you know, being in any sort of, you know, romantic relationship in high school, girls are like, what the fuck's your problem? Why are you fucking failing? Are you an idiot? You know, so, so there was a lot of that, you know. And because I just couldn't put on size to save my life, you know, so... Um, I, I walked around at like a buck 25, buck 30, maybe I'm 205 now. So, (laughs) so, um, so yeah, so I was, I was very, very small. So no, nobody really ever stuck up up for me. And I guess that really came down to, I got kicked out of our church. Um, I got asked to, I got asked to leave. Um, my cousin had become the youth pastor and he read this book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And oh, yeah. yeah, you read that. <laughs> so God will just put this person right in your li- life and you will just know. And I'm like, that's not how that works. And so he also conflated that with, uh, don't be unequally yoked. And I said, well, hold the phone. So I started dating a girl from the, from the youth group. Uh, we're actually still really good friends now that caused all sorts of uproar. And then they started asking us very personal questions. Are you guys sleeping together? I'm like, it's none of your goddamn business whether we are. So we went round and round and round about that. And because Scott and because of the family that I grew up in, if you want to argue Bible with me, I'll argue Bible with you. I don't care. And so Scott would say shit, and I'm like, that's not what it says. And we go back and forth, and it became it did become disruptive in the youth group. I get it, but Scott was kind of going in a different direction that I didn't think that it was appropriate. Anyway, so we went back and forth. I got, I was basically told I was a bad influence on the youth group. And, uh, and, and so, and the thing is, he's my cousin, you know, he, the youth pastor is my cousin. So now I have my entire family not addressing it, not doing anything about the whole thing. So I guess that would have been like a, one of the first, uh, incidents of, I wouldn't say betrayal, but just being let down, you know, not being stood up for. So anyways, I'm on the yellow footprints and, um, I just said, you know, I'm going to kill off that boy. That boy never doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And nothing about him is going to follow this from right now. This is this is a rebirth. This is this is all brand new. I can become something different. God, I wish that was true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It's great uh, theory. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, at 19, you're going, "Fuck yeah, I got this shit." So <laughs> um so I started looking at my drill instructors and going, okay, well, what do I want to be? How do I want to emulate? What do I want to emulate? And that was a big thing is like emulate your leaders, emulate these these legends and these heroes of the Marine Corps. So I tried that the best I possibly could. Boot camp was not easy. It shouldn't be. Some of the old bad habits of, you know, kept creeping in, shit like that. But I, you know, I kept trying to fight it. And this one drill instructor, that motherfucker was the hardest on me, and I hated his fucking guts. But come to find out, that motherfucker loved me more than I will ever be able to understand. Because he pushed me in ways that nobody else would have, nobody else did. And even when I became staff at MCRD San Diego, that man helped take care of me more than my own leadership. And so I owe a tremendous amount of gratitude to that man. What's his name? I'm not gonna go down that road. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. It's it. I, I don't know who's gonna hear it, and and uh, that's between me and him. And I've I've told him, so and I, I know he's an extremely private man. So, 
So he kind of became the person that I wanted to emulate the most. He's about my height, so short. He was fucking mean. Like, he was just, you got anxiety when that man walked in the room. You know, he was just that fucking intense. So we get through uh, recruit training, and it's the night before um, graduation. Well, so we have, there's two different types of graduation. You have family day, which is the day you earn your Eagle Globe and Anchor. And then you have actual graduation. Family day, when you get your Eagle Globe and Anchor, that's the day you actually earn the title Marine. And you no longer have to refer to yourself in the third person. And you, you know, yeah, the whole all of boot camp, you have to refer yourself in the third person. So um, it's this recruit request permission to go to the bathroom. This recruit request permission to do this. This recruit, you know, if I wanted to speak to a drill instructor, you know, recruit green request permission to speak to, you know, senior drill instructor, Staff Sergeant Gonzalez, stuff like that. So as soon as you earn, you earn your Eagle Globe Anchor, you're a Marine. Now it's I, me, my, you know, I can use pronouns. I can use, you know, self-identifiers. And I'm not calling my drill instructor sir anymore. The next day is graduation. And that's when we have this huge pomp and circumstance ceremony and, and stuff like that. So graduate, go to infantry school, go to military police school, got selected to go to canine school, go to canine school. And for the most part, I was having a great fucking time. And that's where I really broke out of my shell in the way that um, I learned how to be a smartass. But and I, so I learned sarcasm and I learned smartassery really quick. And so I learned that I could deflect people's bullshit if I came at came back at them really fast with sarcasm. And so it was it obviously had a lot of trial and error there. But that's how I learned how to command my own presence. And at the time, I didn't realize how cutting my tongue could be. <laughs> I learned that much later. Um, but that's just the culture of the Marine Corps, though. You know, you can get away with that. So I leave K-9 school. I get assigned to my base, which was MCRD San Diego. So they send me back to the same goddamn base. And I was like, what the fuck? So I get there. And um, I was working regular military police duties for a little while. Um, I actually ran into all of my drill instructors. <laughs> And spoke with them for a little bit and, and kind of had developed a little bit of a, a friendly relationship with them. But then I moved over to the canine unit. My dog finally became available. So the day that I arrived at the depot, I go down to the canine unit to go check in. And I'm wearing um, our service alpha uniform, which is like a green suit. You know, it's like green slacks, tan shirt, tan tie with a green um, suit jacket. And you, go, you wear your ribbons. So I'm wearing that. And I get there, and I don't know who I pissed off, or how I pissed them off, or why I pissed them off. I don't know. Any, I don't know what the fuck happened. But all I know is, it was at that moment the hazing started. And now I'm going to preface this with: when you're in a special unit, I agree that there are some hazing rituals that need to be done to one prove your loyalty to the unit, to prove that you really want the job. But that hazing has to have a purpose to it. And it has to come to an end. For example, Hell Week and all of Buds. That is the Navy SEALs hazing, right? Prove to us how bad you really want this shit. We're going to make you do a bunch of really stupid shit to earn this earn this prestigious title. Marine Recon, you know, or now the Marine Raiders, they do the same shit. Rangers, they do the same shit. They have their hazing rituals at the front end of it. And when you get to your individual unit, you're still going to get you know pushed around a little bit. But it's 
now show the rest of the team that we can trust you, show the rest of the team that you deserve to be here. And it's not long lived. It's a very short set of tasks that you have to do that kind of suck, but that's how you earn your place at the table. And so I understood that and that was fine. However, the hazing didn't stop and neither did it have a point. It just kept going and kept going and kept going. Like what happened? <laughs> um, well, so that the first day they had me go do kennel care, uh, which is washing out all the kennels, feeding the dogs, letting them all out, stuff like that. Uh, in my alphas, they didn't let me change into the, into like camis, into, into our BDUs. So I've got dog hair all over me. I got dog piss, dog shit all over my shoes. And so a couple of the dogs are, we call poo poo painters. They fucking step in it and then they step up, you know, up on the walls and up on you. And so I'm trying to keep that dog off me the best I possibly can, but he's kind of an asshole. And none of the dogs know who I am. They've never met me. So they're just running all over the place. They just, oh my God, there's a new person. So I get done with the kennel care. I go back inside and I try to clean off, clean up everything up because I now I have to go to every unit on that base to go check in. And they were like, nope, get in the car. And so I got in the car and we had to go check in. So I got my ass chewed at every single unit. And I was like, okay, this is just part of the fucking drill, whatever. Over the course of the years that I was at K9, they kept me up for a maximum of 80, 87 hours um, doing what's called an Okinawa field day. So if I wanted the, the whole gym Okinawa field day, that means we're going to take every fucking thing that's not bolted down. We're going to take it out to the parking lot. We're going to scrub this place top, bottom. We're going to get every ounce of dust and lint and everything that's off the lights. We're going to fix all the lights. We're going to fix all the ceiling tiles. We're going to do everything that's going to make it all beautiful from the top all the way to the floor. Scrub the floors, buff, strip, wax, all those things. Then we're going to go out we're going to grab one piece at a time, bring it in, wipe it down outside, bring it back in, wipe it down again, and then set it down. So I had to do that with my room. I also had to do that with the kennels. I had to do that with the canine office. I had to do that, you know, a lot of things. So, and it was never good enough. And the thing is that once it was all put back together and it got inspected in very loose air quotes, it was never good enough. So guess what? We do it over again. And when I say we, it would mean me. <laughs> so, um, so there was that. Um, you didn't sleep for 80... 87. 87 hours. Yeah. Yeah, they would keep me up. So there was that. Um, they actually did. They did something that was meant to mentally, emotionally break me. However, in the end, I now use it as a kind of a, a moral compass for life. In the Marine Corps, we have fourteen leadership traits: judgment, justice, decisiveness, integrity, dependability, tact, initiative, enthusiasm, bearing, unselfishness, courage, knowledge, loyalty, and endurance. I know those so real those off like the goddamn reindeer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the reason for that is they would have me stand in front of a mirror and recite all of those. And if I couldn't look myself in the eye on any of them, that was a character deficiency with me. And therefore that's why I was a bad Marine. That's why I was a bad person. That's why I was not deserving of promotion. That's why I wasn't deserving of getting a bomb dog. That's why I wasn't deserving of anything. And that's why I had to go do this other task all over again. And so, and this is actually something that I continue to do. However, I've learned how to show myself some grace and compassion with the whole thing. And so the, the point of it is that if, 
say I read tact, and I, I notice that I look at the tip of my nose, not my own eye. I go, okay, so I'll read it off a couple more times. And if I feel myself really having to force myself to look myself in the eye, then I go, okay, somewhere in my life, I'm not exercising tact very well or enthusiasm or bearing unselfishness, whatever the case may be. And so I can reverse engineer it and I go, okay, where am I not showing bearing? Where am I not showing enthusiasm in my life? Well, I'm not showing enthusiasm in this particular relationship. I'm not showing initiative in you know, uh, my marketing strategy for the company, stuff like this. So then I can say, okay, my intention for the day is this. So this is how I've worked it now, but that's not how they built it into me. The way they built it into me was you're not good enough. You're not a good Marine. You're not a good this. You're not a good that. You're not a good cop. You're shit cop. You're shit handler. You're shit Marine. Go kill yourself, right? Just short of saying that, that's pretty much, it was, it was always implied. That was always an option. So perfection to unrealistic standards was the standard there. That's what was expected of me, period. Then we would also go to do uh, detection pro problems. They'd go hide drugs or bombs or whatever. Yeah, I had a drug dog first, so they'd hide the drugs in the library. And we learned a particular search pattern at canine school, which is follow the bottom seam and then go up the seam. And, you know, it's like a, in, it's a backwards L. Anyways, I would do that. And then some one of, one of the three abusers would say, the fuck are you doing? Nobody does that shit anymore. You got to do the inverted V. So it's a down, up, down. I was like, okay. So I do inverted V. And then one of the others standing right next to each other. What the fuck are you doing? Who the fuck told you to do that shit? You know, do the, you know, you're supposed to do it this way. And so it would just go on and on and on. So then they made a rule that because I was such a shit handler, it was my job to not only do kennel care every single day, but I had to run at least two detection problems, one round of aggression and the obstacle course every single day. So even on my days off, again, loose, my day would be spent at the kennels doing all of that work because you have to go check out the narcotics from the safe. You have to drive out to wherever it is you're going, set it up, write your, all your notes, get the dog out, run the problem, takes 20, 30 minutes, go collect all that shit again, go out to the next site, set it up, wait about another 20 minutes, do your friggin' records, you know, do this whole thing. I have to find another MP or some other Marine who was willing to put on a bite suit for me so I could go do this shit and then run the obstacle course. And by the time I got done with it, it was evening kennel care time and I, you know, had just enough time to go get dinner and go back to bed and get ready to do it all over again. So isolation, it was a classic abusive relationship. Isolation, you know, I wasn't allowed to hang out with the patrol guys. If I got caught hanging out with patrol guys, boy, it was going to be painful because we're canine, we're better than that. And hold on to that phrase because it'll come up again. So I deployed to uh, Ramadi, Iraq in 2004. Um, was that a relief? It was actually. <laughs> um, so I I got my bomb dog and um, he was brand new, straight out of the schoolhouse. Like we went and picked him up from the airport and I was his first handler. What was his name? Tino, T-I-N-O. Um, he was a phenomenal dog. But because we had two, two out of the three of my abusers were deployed, um, and the the third one, because we were kind of equal, he didn't fuck with me that much, but he gave me a pretty unrealistic time to certify with that dog under a month. And he goes, you had you need to certify it by this time because by Marine Corps order, we have to have a certified dog bomb team on the on the base got to get it done. So I hustled my ass off. I'm newly married. So I'm not spending any time at home, you know, nothing. I'm just trying to certify with this goddamn dog. 
So I certify with them. I get it done. Um, one abuser comes back from Iraq. They were on two different teams. They're on a three-month gap mm -hmm. between. So one comes home, and he starts kind of prod, poking and prodding, seeing seeing what he can get away with. So then I I check out of MCRD. I go check into Camp Pendleton, take my dog with me, and I join the um, the the team that's about to deploy. It's uh, 25 Marine Corps handlers and 25 Air Force handlers. And uh, so I get there, and there was another guy I went to canine school with in the group. So I'm being super formal, but yes, corporal, no corporal, you know, just being very rigid and stall. He's like, dude, it's Ben. Knock it off. Like, what is your fucking problem? And I was like, in the back of my head, I'm like, this is a trap. If I call you Ben, I'm going to get punched in the fucking throat. So I'm not going to deal with that shit. Yeah. You know, and so I'm like very rigid about everything. I don't know what's going to get reported back to fucking my abusers and I'm not about to freaking find out. So, you know, I'm even offering to do kennel care for Camp Pendleton's kennels, which is 70 dogs. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, it was, there was a lot of dogs, but anyway, so I'm like, I was still very much in that, in that thing. We got to Iraq and I got sent to the same city with Ben in Ramadi. And he goes, look, if you fucking call me corporal one more time, I will throw punch you. It's fucking Ben. What the fuck is happening at your base? Yeah, did he know what was going on? He it's, figured it out pretty quick. It's like this, it, it sounds like an abusive relationship. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, where yeah. it's like these people are now living in your head. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they did a good job with that. Uh, when I, I kind of want their names, actually. <laughs> they, uh, well, Karma came back and got them, which is fine by me, but... Um, before I left, they kept asking, like, hey, so so where's where's Claudia staying? My wife. And I'm like, Where, where's Claudia staying while you while you're deploying? I'm like, why the fuck's that matter? She's from here. She's fine. Yeah. Oh yeah, just you know, just in case we want to check in. And I'm like, nah, fuck you. You're not gonna find out. So I gave him the the address to my best friend's house. Um and and my best friend knew what was happening and tried to talk me into to reporting him, but I just I couldn't because I mean again, abusive relationship, right? Yeah. It's not it's not team loyalty. So the deployment was the best eight months of my life because that is the one time in my entire life where I truly felt needed and my, that my job and my presence actually mattered in that um, that was the first time that as a bomb dog handler, I'd go out with a, a different infantry unit all the time. Mm -hmm. I was with a different unit all the time. Nobody got blown up. We'd find explosives, we'd find guns, we'd find whatever. I did my job. Everybody got home safe. I did my job. And so there was a very tangible proof of the success of my of my job. So infantry units here, I'm out in front because my job is to find the IEDs and the bombs. And so if everybody got home, then yeah, then, you're done well. then I did well. So there was a tangible proof of my of my success. Especially um, in, in a... Uh emotional environment for most of your life in which no one had ever told you you've done anything well. Right. Right. And even then, you know, it was, it, you know, and I, I didn't have any problem with it. The, the credit goes to the dog because he was working his ass off. But so I had a great deployment, you know, gotten, I got blown up a few times and I got you know, <laughs> shot at a few times and, um, it was everything a combat sh deployment should be. Um, but you in the end, yeah, uh, <laughs> So I, I like how yeah I say that and people are like so hold casually. on say that 
<laughs> we're driving down the road. <clears throat> I was in the lead lead uh, lead patrol vehicle. You could not go through Ramadi. If you went through Ramadi, you did get blown up and you did get shot and somebody died. Period. Like it, we called it the gauntlet for a reason. Mm. So we had to go all the way around Lake Havania, all the way around, and it was about a two and a half hour drive. They take me all the way around there. And uh, on the way, once we got around the lake, we got back on the main highway. Bomb went off underneath our vehicle and launched us up in the air. And they had buried it too deep, so all it did was just kind of picked us up and slammed us back down. And, uh, I mean, it hurt. It's, it's like being in the middle. When you watch fireworks and you can see it go off, but you haven't heard it yet, yeah. picture being in the middle of that explosion. That's what it's like. So that's the best way I can explain it because then there's sparks everywhere and dirt and dust and debris and it's so fucking loud. And um, the turret gunner fell out of the turret, fell in my lap, but in the process of doing that, he had kicked my dog, so my dog was biting him. Oh, God. And so he's screaming. I'm like, I'm checking him for, for, for wounds. He goes, no, it's your fucking dog. I was like, no, out. And I'm punching my dog in the head, trying to get him to release him. And So that was that was the first time. Uh, second time, I was standing outside of a vehicle checkpoint, and uh, we heard the mortars get launched. And you know, second too late, it went off between me and um, another guy, um, and we were probably mm, 20, 25 yards apart. He ended up catching a piece of shrapnel across his throat. The blast of it knocked me over, um, just by grace of God, universe, whatever you want to call it. I didn't get hit with anything. So we go out, grab him, drag him inside. He's grabbing his throat. He's bleeding all over the place. Uh, Corman comes over, slaps him, figures out, no, it's just a superficial wound. He just got right up to the trachea. didn't actually pierce it. So we finally get him to calm down. They just super glued it shut, and on with the mission we went. <laughs> and uh, that same vehicle checkpoint, unofficially, I was used as sniper bait. So we had a sniper down at the market down the street. And every time I would go out, there was a bounty on dog, uh, dog handlers and the dogs. And so I kept hearing the snap over my head of rounds, but I could tell that it was higher. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it wasn't as loud as you'd think. And I was like, that's weird. You know, so I'm searching vehicles and shit. And next thing I hear is the counter sniper. And all of a sudden I wasn't getting shot at anymore. So they were waiting for him to expose himself by shooting at me so they could kill him so um those are the three major things that happened during my deployment we got to participate in the first free iraqi elections that was actually a lot of fun had an rpg shot at the building that i was in and it hit right outside the wall that i was standing behind and uh, rocket propelled grenade so i think like a bazooka yeah so yeah so i mean we it's a combat deployment these are all non foreign things in a combat deployment, you know, anybody who's been on a combat deployment, like, yeah, that's, fuck yeah, that's, that's nothing. Um, I was very fortunate to have never gotten injured or to, to, to the point where I received a purple heart or anything like that. And, you know, physically, I mean, I mean, it, I'm not even going to say that it's really fucked with me that bad. I mean, there's certain little quirks that I have that, you know, I don't like from deployment. Like I don't like driving next to for a long time, I didn't like driving over potholes. I didn't like driving next to boxes, stuff like that. Um, I only had one time where I saw two dudes. One dude got out of a car next to an abandoned building. There's another dude of the same 
regional ethnicity <laughs> on the other side. They both got on cell phones and started walking the opposite direction. And I was stuck in traffic right next to that car. That was the only time that I was like, this is going to hurt. And I just kind of waited. And it was, I don't know, it was just, just the brain kind of takes off in a direction that, that you don't expect it to. But those are the only ones that I really walked away from, kind of scarred from, I suppose. So anyways, great deployment. I'm with a bunch of Marines who treated me like a human. They treated me with love and compassion. And I, um, I owe those men a ton of gratitude for just being the men that they are and being the roommates that they were. And, you know, I would, I will love them to my dying breath. And, um, they know that. So get back to the United States, got back on June 10th, 2005. And I got back down to the base. I go to check in my weapons and I go to check in my stuff. And one of my abusers is working in the armory. And, um, He's like, well, don't get too comfortable. You're leaving again in a couple months. I was like, hold on. I I literally don't even, I haven't even taken a shower yet. What the fuck? He's like, I was like, this abuser, abuse, you know, he's up for rotation next. <clears throat> and then you and then me again. No, no. These two, they said they're going to a specialized school. So therefore they can't go. So therefore I have to take the other guy's place. So therefore I only get two months at home and then I get to go back again. So I had like this emotional kind of breakdown. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And um, immediately the hazing started all over again. As soon as I got checked in, it just, yeah, it, it couldn't have been that bad. You know, they, they tried to minimalize everything I did. Um, I got my Navy Achievement Medal. They told me that I probably, you know, lied about my stats as to how I got it. They, they wouldn't recognize that I had achieved my Marine Corps martial arts uh, gray belt there. They wouldn't achieve, they wouldn't recognize my combat action ribbon. So they made me change my entire stack of ribbons just because they didn't want to, they didn't want to give validity to the point that I, to the fact that I had gotten those awards. Are they, are they allowed to do that? No, but I mean, at the same time, I'm, I don't know the fucking difference. You know, I'm, I'm also under the power of, you know, I don't want to get fucking whacked again. Well, how was it that they were in charge of you? Was it a yeah, thing? yeah, yeah, by rank. So they were they were corporals. I was a lance corporal, so I was a non NCO at the time. So I finally said, I, I can't do this. And um, in this fit of emotional rage, I went to the chief of police, the provost marshal. Now in the in the military, you never skip ranks. Okay. I skipped about seven, <laughs> and I went straight into the provost marshal's office. And I'm having this essentially mini panic attack. I'm like, sir, we need to talk now. He was a, he's what's called a Mustang. So he was enlisted and then he became an officer. Mm -hmm. He's like, all right, get your blouse. So we took off our cami blouse, which means we're not wearing rank anymore. And he talked to me man to man. And he goes, what's happening down there? And you better tell me the fucking truth. But. And it had been happening for how long? Uh, about two years at that point. Jesus. So I don't tell him the whole truth. I don't tell him about going down to the, the Marine Corps martial arts, you know, program and literally getting beat on, you know, cause they're sparring. Um, I don't tell them about a lot of, the, I didn't tell them about a lot of the things. I just said, look, I can't be there anymore. I gotta, I gotta come back to patrol. I quit canine. I'm like, take the MOS off my record. I don't give a shit. You know, I'll, I'll act like I never even went to the fucking school. So he pulled me from canine that day and put me back in the platoons. And a week later I promoted to corporal. So I could have either promoted to corporal and still stayed the lowest ranking person at the kennels and continued to get hazed as a corporal or 
come back to you know patrol, be a corporal, and be a patrol supervisor and watch commander. Duh. So I came back, uh, promoted, and they gave me a platoon of misfits. And uh, so now I'm in this leadership position. I went from being the low man with no leadership capabilities whatsoever and literally getting beat on to now I'm in charge of five other dudes and I'm the watch commander and patrol supervisor. So any major critical incident on that base now falls on me. So I had to quickly figure out what my leadership style was going to be. So I just did the opposite of what they did. And not to the... Like, I knew how to put pain in someone's body without ever fucking touching them based mm -hmm. off what they did to me. So when my guys fucked up, I knew how to fuck with them. But I never stepped over the line, and I never took it to a new the, the new level that they took it to. My last year in the Marine Corps was spent on patrol um, with a phenomenal team. All the guys in dress blues right there. That was my platoon. That one? Yep. Um, those were my guys. Uh, the guy, the bald guy right next to me, um, to my... Uh, left in the picture. That's my best man and my best friend, Joe. He and I were in charge of that platoon and everybody else fell under us. And, um, it was a, it was a really fucking good crew. Like they were, they were really good kids. So Joe and I got out of the Marine Corps. He went back to Utah, went, came back up here and we got hired with our, our perspective agencies. I got recalled back to active duty. So I had gotten hired on. I had spent about a year with the sheriff's office. And then um, I got recalled back to active duty. How, how, how does that happen? How is that possible? <laughs> Presidential orders. Basically, the Marine Corps was running short on bodies. And they were like, hey, we need so many more people from XYZ MOSs from this rank up. Right? So they said, we need corporal sergeants and staff sergeants from these MOSs to come back because we're sh running short on leaders. An MOS. Marine, uh, uh, military occupational specialty. Okay. It'd be infantry, combat camera, combat cook, whatever the case may be. I mean, you know, so they needed military police officers, infantry guys, and combat engineers at the time. And so a whole series of us who are on. So you. you it's like being drafted. It's like kind of. No. Well, when you enlist in the military, you promise eight years of the military, period. Um, you only do most people only do four years active, mm -hmm. and then you do four years inactive, which means you're bound. To, you could get called up, and you could still go get deployed and, and stuff like that in a national emergency, which obviously happened. So I was supposed to deploy again, and I was okay with that. What national emergency was this? Uh, this was in 2008. So we had had this huge shortage of bodies in the military, and a lot of that was uh, because our recruitment numbers were so fucking low. Mm -hmm. The numbers were so low because society had, I understand the, the, the perceptions of, you know, the justification of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. I understand that Afghanistan was a whole lot more justifiable than the war in Iraq. But as a result of the publicity, the negative publicity coming from that, our recruitment numbers were tanked. They were done. Nobody wanted to go in. And the, the school systems weren't doing anything to really, help that at all they were you know if you're going to them this is a, kind of the peak time where you're going in the military because you're too stupid you're you're too poor you know you're all these other things so kids you know felt compelled to stay the fuck away from the military at all all costs um you know we we kind of affectionately you know refer to it as kind of the new vietnam 
you know, is, is how people were treating veterans in, in, the, in the military community at that time. So they were running short on, on mid-level leadership at that time. So they said, hey, bring them back. Okay. So the FedEx man shows up, and I got orders to come back uh, to the military, and so I did. So I go back uh, as a corporal. I got promoted to sergeant pretty quick. And I was supposed to deploy, but because I was already a civilian police officer and I had acquired a bunch of training, the military police department at Camp Pendleton goes, hey, we're going to use you. Come on over and train Marines how to be good cops. I said, okay, I'll do that, but I need the, the wiggle room. So they put me in traffic enforcement. So just like the motor cops that you would see now, mm -hmm. I did that, but in a patrol car and I did DUI enforcement primarily and accident investigations. And in the other times that I wasn't doing that, I worked in the training department teaching new Marines how to be good cops because the military police program that we had at the time was very old. It was very archaic. And so I brought uh, Joe and I both brought a lot of new civilian experience to the, the military police department. And we were in charge of teaching a lot of new, new uh, MPs this. So um, I go back for another year. Claudia and my son stayed up here, and uh, I, I lived on base. So I did that, got out, got you know, back with the sheriff's office, and then continued my career. That time in the Marine Corps was actually really, really nice because, again, I was with a bunch of normal fucking people who weren't doing stupid shit. However, here's where karma comes in. While I was recalled, two Marines got charged with abuse and hazing and a whole laundry list of other crimes because i have ac had access i looked and two out of three of my abusers had just now gotten court-martialed one took a plea agreement got knocked down in rank so now he was much lower rank than me um, also got his badge removed and got changed to a different career the other one went to the brig got a bad conduct discharge and got kicked out of the military yeah yeah so bad conduct discharge. So if we're going to go from top to bottom, you have honorable, uh -huh. under honorable, which means like a medical discharge. You were good, but you know we you didn't fulfill all the qualifications for an honorable. Under other than honor or a general discharge, which means you weren't in long enough for us to really give a shit. So you get under honorable, but it's like you have a medical condition in boot camp or in training. Okay. You have under other than honorable, which is what my shithead nephew got because he popped on a piss test and you know quit the military then you have bad conduct discharge which is where you're you're starting to go to the the brig and then you have dishonorable and that's the the lowest of the low okay. um uh, you got a bad conduct discharge and loss of rank and a lot, a lot of other things when i read the reports of what they did to receive that punishment i actually had a, a moment where i went that's it was it less than what they had done to you? Oh, fuck yeah. That was an easy day. Wow. What what they did was an easy day for me. And I was like, that's all it took? Are you serious? So all that time you could have... Oh, yeah. I could have really fucked their world up, but I didn't. And at the same time, like, I, I, I grew had, up in... Had you said something at the time, would they have gotten a dishonorable discharge, do you think? Potentially. Yeah. What do you think about that? You know, if I went back in time and I changed anything, we're, we're fucking with the butterfly effect. Yeah. It's not going to bring me to where I'm at now. Yeah. So do I, I, fate, God, the gods, whoever, clearly believe that I 
needed that in my life um, at that time to teach me something. And I, I, I accept that. Um, what do you think that was? Um, well, uh, growing up in that extremely sheltered and rose-colored glass, you know, upbringing, I think that really woke my eyes up to how humanity can really be. Mm-hmm. It taught me how ugly I could get, and it also taught me how, how, how not to be that way. Um, like, obviously, by, when, by demonstrating by what they were doing, you realized that you had it in you to do the same. Oh yeah. Well, think about it. If you you you, you got kids who get abused, right, and yeah. then they turn into abusers. Yeah. Right, a lot of a lot of that is they just you they learned how bad they could get, and so they emulate that, and then it, most most time they get worse than the the person that set that example. Yeah. So what I had learned was I said, well, if I want to be a good leader, I do the opposite of them. However, if I absolutely must get really dark, and if I absolutely must become a really bad person, that's how I do it. So. Everybody's got that the, the angel and devil on each shoulder. Mm-hmm. And I know exactly what my devil is capable of. Or at least I did at that time. I proved myself a new level later. But, <laughs> but you know, so, so I, I learned I learned the, the the you cannot have light without dark. So I learned how dark it could get really mm-hmm. quick. So they um Yeah, so I it, it I was like, yeah, fuck it. It's karma. They got it. You know, I win. I'm a sergeant. They're not. You know, I'm getting an honorable discharge. They're not. I'll be able to do my my dream career for the rest of my life, and they're not. And so, fuck them. Uh, they brought them. They brought it on themselves. What about, what about the third one? So the third one, he, you know, he couldn't have done it without those other two anyway. He was, you know, even though he outranked the other two, he only did it because they were around. Because remember, when I got recalled, when I got sent, you know, got my bomb dog, the other two were deployed. So it was just him. And he and I actually got along decently, right, while those two weren't around. Mm. The second one of them came back, that's when he came, became a dick again. He was, yeah. he, even though he outranked them, he was very much the follower of the two. You know, and there's always a ringleader. It's kind of a, a duck formation. It's a V. So, yeah, so they, uh, they got, they got what, was coming to them. Do you um, know where they are now? Um, allegedly. I mean, have you ever? Yeah. I I've had I've had visions of of running into them and what I would say, what I would do. What would you say? Um. More likely than not, I'd probably just avoid them. You know, and it's not out of fear. It's just. You know, everybody has a Doctor Jekyll and a Mister Hyde, and I've let Hyde out before, and I don't like Hyde. I don't want to let Hyde out again. Hyde almost got me into a lot of fucking trouble. And um, it's not worth it's not worth it to let Hyde out again. I also think that it's better to yeah, to take that high road and to, to go, look, look at what I own. I created this. I created this all by my fucking self. Granted, I got stabbed in the back three fucking times in the process, but at the same time, all of this is my doing. All of that, I'm not going to attribute to them. But at the same time, they are kind of responsible for making me who I am. Because they showed me what exactly not to do and how dark I could get. So I just kind of, I, I, I meddle with that. You know, I just go, I, I do the opposite of that. But then also understand where some of the value value of some of those lessons are. 
So the like the the fourteen traits, right? Instead of using it to be self-deprecating and, and and just you know self-loathing about it all the time and and putting myself up to these unreasonable and unattainable standards of perfection, mm-hmm. now I can look at it and go, okay, I am lacking in endurance and enthusiasm today. Okay, well, where am I? In, where am I lacking in that? Well, I'm in de- I'm lacking in endurance or enthusiasm because vacation is two days away, and I don't want to fucking be here, right? I just want to get through these two days so I can get on that goddamn plane and go. If I know that's a character flaw, then I need to back up. I need to be very mindful of that. I need to be very intentional on in how I treat my students, and so I need to be enthusiastic for them. I need to put on that show for them. I need to keep them entertained, and I need to keep them engaged. So if I don't have that enthusiasm, they're going to suffer, and that's not fair to them. Um, endurance. Am I enduring a particular circumstance in my life right now? Not as well as I would hope. So then I go, well, how can I endure it better? Well, I should probably be a little more mindful of this or that or this, you know, and give myself a little bit of grace and give myself a little compassion towards this particular affliction. So I've learned how to turn that into a positive. It's only taking 17 fucking years. Chris's story because there's a lot to it um, first of all there is the surviving the trauma itself so for him the trauma of being in the Marines was less about being in combat and more about the abuse that he faced at the hands of his peers which is a strange thing to realize about that story but um, yeah it's funny how being blown up didn't bother him at all but being physically, verbally, and emotionally assaulted in a systematic fashion took its toll. Uh, next week comes the, <laughs> the further adventures of Chris as he navigated becoming a police officer and functioning through all of the trauma that he absorbed while he was in the Marines and how he ended up in rehab and what happened after that. So I hope that you will join me next week for the conclusion of Chris's story. As it is um, for today's Cool Art Corner. Um, This person does not know that I'm doing this, but it's an Instagram account called Rad Girl Creations. Um, And I like it because there is, it's, it's done by, I, I think, uh, some kind of medical provider, but they describe themselves as nerdy medical and anatomy flair shop. Um, they are located in Connecticut, but what I love the most about them is they have the greatest pins ever, perhaps my favorite of which is support your local medical examiner, die strangely. Um, they also have... Uh, dead inside or they have it's just they have like skeletonized birds and skeletonized Mickey Mouses and keychains that say wash your hands don't get murdered by germs 
and it's it's more swag than art, but either way, it makes me happy, and I dumped a lot of money on buying stuff for me and my coworkers. So if you have a chance, check it out. Um, Rad Girl Creations, you can find her or them. I don't even know who it is. I assume it's a girl. Anyway, on Instagram at Rad Girl Creations. Um, let's see here. If you would like to reach me, I can be reached at deadmensdonuts at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, deadmensdonuts backslash society of survivors. And Instagram, deadmensdonuts. I think that's it. Is there more? Oh, yeah. Uh, the website is www.deadmensdonuts.com. And that's mostly tales of misadventures. Uh, championed by me, me, wonderful me, and all of the crazy shit that I get into um, investigating death. Our intro and outro music was done by Vi the Fiddler. That's V-I the Fiddler. Uh, you can find him at vithefiddler.com. He has a new album out called Swingin' at the Savoy, which you can find on iTunes. And... My logo work was done by Tasha Zuniga at uh, Art of Obscura on Instagram, so check her out. And I guess take care of yourself, take care of those around you, send me stories of your survival, send me stories of other people's survival, send me stories because I like them, and I hope you do too. So for this week, this is Grace Baudino signing off. Bye.